It might be a pretty sweet way to live. Welcome to my tiny house on wheels. This is absolute magic. You've just created such a spacious feeling and welcoming home. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, it, um, thanks. It certainly feels that way. <laughs> it doesn't feel small at all. I think the idea really appealed to us due to financial reasons, but also just sustainable reasons as well, just to think of how we can live by decluttering our lives and everything and just reducing what we have. But regulations are complex. Tiny house advocates say legislation lending and land are prohibiting people from buying tiny houses. They say there is huge demand for the houses and it could help solve the housing crisis if the problems are dealt with. And it seems many of those selling them may be over-promising and under-delivering. Tiny homes are big business right now. But for the people in our next story, the issues they've created are huge. Devastating, in fact. A Northland-based builder of tiny houses has been promising idyllic miniature homes. But some of his customers say all he is delivering is unfinished work and a nightmare. Kia ora, I'm Tom Kitchen, and today on The Detail, what's the deal with the tiny homes? Are they the picture-perfect new cheap way to live or a bureaucratic horror story? First, we want to give you an idea of what it's like to live in a tiny home. Lydia and Anton have been living in one near Wellington since 2020, but they're about to move out. It was funny on the census, it got to be a three-bedroom house because it has two lofts, but it's really just one big bedroom. The bathroom <laughs> is separate, but it's like the lounge on the right-hand side, and then on the left, there's the kitchen. It's kind of all part of it. And then you've got lofts on either side, so one's connected by a ladder and one's connected by stairs, which are also storage. How big is your tiny house? It's something like seven metres by 2.5 metres by three metres high. Okay, right. So tell me when you kind of first dreamed up the idea of moving to a tiny house and why. We were flatting in Wellington. It was super expensive. I had a friend whose older sister had just built her own tiny house. Um, and it was actually my friend that sent me a link to a tiny house that was selling in Wellington on Trade Me, And we were struggling financially as it was um, and we were just kind of like oh my gosh that would be so cool to kind of have our own space and to pay off an asset rather than just renting a room and paying off a landlord we didn't actually buy that one off trade me we ended up going through a separate person who builds tiny homes and we designed it and we got it built for us and did you ever imagine yourself living in a tiny house it was really a kind of practical and financial decision it was never we'd never been like I've talked to a lot of people who really idealize tiny house living and they watch the tv shows and we we hadn't really thought about it until my friend just suggested it as a practical option and we're like that sounds fantastic for us what was it like getting all the consents and the processes that you needed? We were very lucky. We were able to be registered as a caravan because we're fully self-contained on wheels. But I know that different different councils are different, different areas are different. It was really complicated because we did it all during lockdown and COVID. We rent the spot off a landowner who's agreed for us to be there and he knows how we work and all of that. We found him on Facebook. There's a lot of good Facebook pages about tiny housing in New Zealand. If you just kind of put in the keywords, you can join all those groups. What was it like to sort out the water, power and sewage and get all that hooked up? It was really complicated because it was locked down. So we kind of ended up going without all of that stuff for that whole winter of 2020, Ooh. just because of all the services. 
were getting themselves back on their feet so, and things like solar power weren't essential services so it took until we did march till august without power oh um, no okay how was that during the middle of winter and near wellington it was awful at the time but oh my goodness i'll never forget the feeling of turning the lights on in august like the fridge just felt like magic yeah but i mean when it all got sorted after those few months and after that winter which must have been very cold Describe to me the heating, the bathroom, the amenities that you had in your tiny home. So the heating's interesting, actually. We're we're fully insulated and double glazed, and it's new. So we actually, being young and sprightly, we actually did pretty well without heating. It was only this winter that we found ourselves becoming too old and weak, and we got a fireplace. Right. Um, got like a, a tiny roaring meg, which has been fantastic. What kind of amenities do you have in terms of cooking? We use gas. We only need to change the gas bottle like once or twice a year even. We use it for cooking and hot water. What about your bathroom facilities? We use composting toileting which I could rave about composting toileting all day. It's fantastic. It's inside the house. Ours is just one single bucket. We have like a biodegradable bag inside the bucket and you just put on sawdust. Some people use things like pine needles, but we're a bit too bougie for that. We use sawdust. If it smells, you just put more sawdust on and then it's all good. What about shower? It's all rainwater. So so we collect off our roof. The tank is 2,000 litres. And living in Wellington, that does us for the pretty much for the year. Maybe in late summer, we need the hose once to top up the tanks. It's run through a, like a filtration system as well, which does require a pump, which uses a little bit more power. Being on solar is probably the drawback that makes this living off the grid quite difficult. You do have to change your lifestyle quite a bit to rely on solar power. Like um, at the time, we bought probably a cheaper system than would have been comfortable. I think the ballpark of of our system was probably something like 20 grand for setup and batteries and panels. We also have a generator, which we realised we were going to need for winter nights when you just have no sun at all during the day. How much did this all cost? To buy the tiny house, we got, we've done quite a lot of work on it. Or my, my husband, he's been amazing. He's fitted out the whole inside. So we really just bought the shell. You can buy a shell from Fox Cabins. I think at the time it might have been about 90, 95000 But we've since put in quite a lot of things, like put in a deck and pantries and um, done a lot of work to the inside as well. And did you have to get a mortgage? My limited understanding based on our experience is that you can't get a mortgage unless you're buying an asset that doesn't depreciate, like land. So because we were renting the spot, there was no way we were going to get a standard mortgage for a tiny house. So we were lucky enough to have a family member who was willing to remortgage their house and we paid them back at mortgage rates. So you're moving out of your tiny house now. Why is that? We're in the process of buying a house at the moment. Our plan was always to sell the tiny house for a deposit on a real house so we could get on the property ladder. And This was the only way you could see yourself doing that? Essentially, yeah. There's no way at the moment that if we'd been paying a normal Wellington rent, we'd be able to be in a position to pay a house deposit. Charlemagne also lives in a tiny house. She's the organiser of the New Zealand Tiny Homes Expo and runs two websites, Tiny House Hub and Landshare. Oh, it was probably as far back as 2014. Um, tiny houses just started popping up on YouTube and on social media for me. It wasn't a huge thing back then in New Zealand. And I was stuck in that rent trap like a lot of people are and wanted to do a tiny house but didn't know how I'd be able to do it because I couldn't use like KiwiSaver to put towards it. 
in the end, I managed to pull together a deposit to buy a three-bedroom house in Whanganui and got in there and went crazy renovating and having a go at being a DIYer. I thought, I'm not really living. Like, is this all there is? And so I decided to finish the house, sell it off, and use the money I um, made out of that house to build a tiny house. So where are you living now? I'm in a house bus at the moment, and uh, I'm floating around the North Island. Oh, God. <laughs> so, so I don't actually to... have a fixed base right, right this you minute. You don't have a fixed abode? No. But it wasn't all easy for Sharla. When I built the first tiny house, I was quite novice. Unfortunately, I had arranged for a driver to move my tiny house from the place I had arranged to build it into its location where I was going to live on it. They damaged the tiny house. They got it stuck. They caused a lot of damage to the land. The landowner wasn't happy. I didn't realise they weren't going to cover any of the damage they caused. So I had to go through small claims tribunal to try and get money back for the damage. It was about $5,000 worth of damage. During that personal experience, I started to understand the legal side of things, of wh- how where you are protected and where you aren't. Uh, the idea started back then to create something like the Tiny House Hub to put all that knowledge together in one place to help other people going on their tiny house journeys. What inspires people to move into a tiny house? A lot of people have a lot of different reasons, but um, a big majority of them are doing it because they're wanting to release equity in a house. Since I've been in the, the industry and with all the demographics we collect through our website data and people attending the show, our biggest demographic of people coming through is 45 plus. They make up uh, 67% of the tiny house market. <laughs> Um, 71% are women coming through and visiting our websites. And what we're seeing, their reasons are a lot of people are getting near retirement and starting to think, how can they afford to to have a decent retirement? All of their money is tied up in their property. And so we're seeing them downsize and sell the bigger family home and buy a new tiny house and either lease land or buy a cheap block of land to put it on or put it on family land. I also thought it would be younger people trying to get into the property market because it's so hard at the moment. Yeah, there was a lot of that at the start. Unfortunately, the cost to build in New Zealand hasn't just affected more traditional houses because tiny houses still use similar materials. They still have bathrooms and kitchens and the cost has ballooned a lot with inflation and things. Um, recently, but it's also hard for them to get financing. I was lucky because I managed to get into a property and sell that to re- to get money to do my first tiny. They're still treated as like vehicles or um, it's a personal loan. So a lot of the lenders will ha- for a personal loan they might have a maximum of seventy thousand that they'd lend, and a lot of the tiny houses we're seeing now it, it will cost more. And you wouldn't be able to get mortgage-like interest rates on that either, would you? No, it would be personal loan rates. The only way you can really do it is if you have it attached to a mortgage. So like if mum and dad would take out a second mortgage for them to do that and they can get the cheaper rates. Is it also people trying to make a more environmentally friendly impact? It's it's become so broad now. It used to be that was quite a big focus for the tiny house movement and that's the kind of people we were seeing. But we're just seeing such a wide variety of people drawn to tiny house living now. So there's a whole lot of different things about tiny homes, but one might think I'll get into a tiny home because the consent process might be easier, you might not have to fill in as many forms, but that's not the case, is it? It's complicated. In, In layman's terms at the moment, I like to describe it that 
if you hold a driver's license in Auckland, if you go down to Hamilton, you need to get a new driver's license to drive in Hamilton. That's what it's like between the regions and Mm. the tiny houses. There's the Resource Management Act, the Building Act, that relate and they don't actually specify tiny houses, so it's a bit of a grey area that can be interpreted differently by depending on who's looking at it. At the moment, I'm part of the Tiny House Association. We founded it three years ago to start working with the different councils and try to streamline the legal process. We have had 14 councils sign up with us, and we're currently working through creating a legal pathway that councils can adapt in each region to make it easier. People aren't choosing to go through the consent process because it is just a nightmare to deal with. I know of someone who went through it with their own parents on their land. They ended up paying $30,000 to go through and get resource consent and building consent for the tiny house on wheels. And then it's also consented to that property and then the value of that property is increased even though the actual landowner doesn't own that tiny house. And then when you want to move the tiny house into another piece of land if you're only leasing it it just becomes a nightmare so we're currently working with 14 councils to create a permit system which would be like a pay-as-you-go model like dog registration where you go in and you pay a fee for a year or five years to be on that piece of land and you've ticked the boxes that are happy that you're compliant and we're also working with MB at the moment to create an acceptable solution under the building code. So we get the good stories about the Mm -hmm. Expo, and tell me about the Expo. You've had a lot of people turn up to this. The high cost of housing and today's easing of COVID restrictions combined to cause an overwhelming response at an Auckland exhibition. The organisers of the Tiny House Show were surprised by attendance. They say interest has never been so high. March last year, just coming out of the lockdowns and that, and we had 10,000 come through. It just shows how much the interest is growing. The first expo we had in what was more of a conference in 2017, we had 70 people. So it just keeps (laughs) growing each year. And so it's been a bit of a logistical nightmare trying to balance that. It's a good press, but also bad press. Mm -hmm. It seems to be a very hard business to be in, building a tiny house. And we've had a lot of companies liquidate over the last year or so. The court ordered NZ Modular Homes be put into liquidation. NZ Tiny Homes went into liquidation in November. I don't think it's unique to the tiny house industry. I think it's more, um, you know, it's quite unique to to the building industry. It's not just tiny houses, it's commercial and residential builds as well. We've tried to help with the tiny house hub with this um, as best as we can. I think people need to be smart when they're going to be handing over a lot of money to to the builders to get their, you know, dream tiny house built. Now, here's someone who's been looking into people falling into these problems. This is an industry that unfortunately has lent itself to things going wrong. Jill Higgins is a reporter for TVNZ's Fair Go, and she did a big investigation into a dodgy tiny homes company earlier this year. There was the soaring house prices in 2019. Property asking prices have hit a 13-year high in eight regions around the country. That meant a lot of people were looking for a cheaper way to live, and tiny homes were a great way to do that. So at the same time, there was a boom in the tiny home industry. So a lot of people were coming on board, and some of those were legitimate and thought, yep, we can do this, we can make a good business. 
and others were just very opportunistic. They might have been building fences and thought, hey, I can build a fence, I can build a tiny home, what's the difference? <laughs> and it's a way of making a quick buck. I think it was around that time we started to notice that a lot of these companies were being set up by people that weren't honouring their contracts with customers. And then the big investigation that you did. Warren Sinclair. This is his company, New Zealand Modular Homes. And according to his website, they build off-site, delivering customers a great home with a simple order process and fast delivery. So that's his story. But we've uncovered a tale which shows that there's no fast delivery. In fact, there's no delivery. How did you find out about that? Every week we get over 100 emails and we're trying to sift through them. How do we work out which stories to do? So one of the factors, there are many factors, but one of them is if we get a number of complaints from independent people complaining about the same person or the same company, then that makes us sit up and take notice. And so that's what happened here. We had several emails coming in saying about New Zealand modular homes and we thought, oh, OK, this could be worth looking into. These were people that you know, had this dream of having a tiny house on this bit of land. And basically that dream was just crushed by Warren Sinclair. How did he crush the dreams? At first, he would come across as a really good salesperson. So he was very charming. He befriended these people. So they fully trusted him, gave him amounts of money that some of us would think, why would you do that up front? So in one case, it was 140000 the total cost of the tiny house. That money has gone to Warren Sinclair. He makes promises. It'll be delivered by this date. The delivery doesn't come. They chase up. He starts to give excuses. And so at first, it's just this long list of excuses. And then it becomes ghosting. Just doesn't reply. Just doesn't reply. And then they realise, uh-oh, we might have made a mistake here. And he ghosted Fiergo too. We tried phoning. His phone was never answered. We tried emailing. He would never respond. And so we did go to this particular site where all the tyres are. It was a bit of a ghost town. But just as we were leaving, he came and knocked on our car window, which was a bit of a fright. And so we spoke to him for a few seconds. This is about cases that aren't even in court. Um, they are in court, and I can't talk to you yet to leave. So one of the couple's mother was planning to have a cabin put on their land so that they could, she could be near them. She was retired and she wanted to just live near them for her last few years. And again, nothing was coming, nothing was coming. She got cancer and unfortunately she died. So and sad. so she saw nothing for the money, the 80000 or so that she'd given him. They decided that she had a little bit of money that she left to them and that they would use that money to take him into liquidation, which is really unusual for a customer, a single customer, to do that because it is quite expensive. And what happened in court? The liquidation process is ongoing, and so that will take some time to see if there are any, if there's any money, any goods or anything that can be used to pay back all of his creditors. But there are a lot of creditors, and customers are usually right at the bottom of the list. Until now, that has been one of the biggest, biggest risks of, of getting a tiny house built off-site. There is a little glimmer of hope, though, with the, a new ruling that came out because of New Zealand Tiny Homes, which was a company that went into liquidation last year. Six families who bought tiny homes from a company which then went bust have won the right to receive their nearly and partially completed homes in what has been described as a groundbreaking court decision. When New Zealand Tiny Homes went into liquidation, six of the customers went to the High Court and said, we believe that those houses on his site belong to us. Up until now, that's never been the case. They just say, no, sorry, bottom of the list, 
get out of here, wait your turn. But in this case, the judge ruled what he called natural justice, which was to say, if you can identify that that particular tiny house belonged to you, then it's yours. And this was a big shock to everyone that's involved in liquidation cases. It means that customers have been moved to the top of the list if they can prove that it's their tiny house. So it can't be any tiny house. It has to be a particular tiny house. So that was... J.B. Cameron, was he based in New Plymouth? James Cameron, he's New Plymouth, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So... So he was a different... Yeah, he, he, he was, seemed to be a bit more open about the reasons why. He was very why. open. He yeah. took responsibility, he apologised. When he started out, his whole thing was he wanted to help people out of the housing crisis. His, his business did really well in the first... 10 months it, it, the business increased by about 500% and and it was he was on a roll and then like the big thing with all of these tiny house companies is covid really put a, a a break on everything freight costs went up materials costs went up and when you're running a pretty tight budget which they were because this is cheap building then that is what caused so many problems for so many companies, which is why between 2020 and 2022, so many of them went under. Okay, and then we've got amazing spaces as well, which just went into liquidation. That's another very similar example to New Zealand Tiny Homes because the owner of that company, director of that company, again, he fronted up and took responsibility. He actually got throat cancer at the time, along with all of the other problems. He says that he's just been left with no money he feels terrible for the house owners. So they're examples of where you wouldn't really want to make it worse for them because they're, they're in a bad situation. But there is another example, which is along the lines of Warren Sinclair. So Podular Housing Systems. I don't know if you've yes. heard of them. Yes. Yeah, so that is just so wrong. They started up in 2020 as well, unlike New Zealand Tiny Homes, whose business did really well at first. The liquidators say that in the first six months, they owed $545,000. And they only had 45000 in their accounts. Now, how does that happen? Partly because the director, Charles Inns, was paying himself $3,000 a week, regardless of whatever else was going on. (laughs) They tried to delay liquidation, saying they could keep it going. But then just before they went into liquidation, he jets off to Australia. He He was pulled back by the liquidators, which is really unusual. They wanted him to explain what had happened. He couldn't give any good good reasons, never mind excuses. Uh, His excuses were that his books were a mess. He didn't really see the gravity of the situation. Well, then you really shouldn't be running a business, should you? Yeah. Yeah. So so that's those poor 60 customers have been left in the lurch by him. Is there a bit of a trend of builders and tiny homes having to shut shop? Well, there there is a trend. And I, I honestly think that COVID, rising costs are a lot to do with it. Like that has been a real problem for them. Hopefully we're over that now and that from now on, A, people will be much more aware that there are there or have been dodgy tiny house companies out there and the situation won't be maybe as bad with the rising costs of things. But then what am I saying? Because the cost <laughs> of everything is rising. Do you think there should be more protections or do you think it should be easy and you shouldn't have so many regulations? One of the beauties about this really is the lack of regulation, but that does mean it's easier for people to to fall into difficult circumstances. You can say this till you're blue in the face, but the key thing is to check out who you're going to build with before you start building and to do your checks and balances, to to check out your, have your contract checked out. You know, there are lots of things you can do to strengthen your own position. 
all you need to do is look up Warren Sinclair on the company's register. He's got about seven companies under his name. Some of them are already in liquidation. So that should be a warning sign right from the beginning. Then I would say another good thing is to say, okay, can I see some finished homes? Can I go and check out one that you finished just to see if it's the kind of style that I want? Talk to the people that live there. You know, did you have any problems? Did it get delivered on time? Generally, most people are trusting people because you think if I'm not going to do anything bad, why would anyone else do anything bad? That's it for today. I'm Tom Kitchen. The detail is supported by the Public Interest Journalism Fund. Today's episode was engineered by Steve Burridge. Our producers are Alexia Russell and Bonnie Harrison. Thanks to Lydia, Charlemagne and Jill Higgins. Hey, Kona. Cool